podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out A Tad Predictable, hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 30th of August. Hope you're all well. We have today, tomorrow, and Friday left in the transfer window. Shaping up to be a very busy few days for pretty much everybody. Lots of clubs trying to do lots of deals. Uh, But we're not going to do transfers today because it is Wednesday. and This is the, the appointed day for nostalgia on this podcast. So... Before we get to our nostalgia topic, we're going to quickly take a look at what happened last night. So we had EFL Cup action, as everybody is aware, and we had some very, very entertaining games and some very 
interesting results. So Swansea 2, Bournemouth 3. David Brooks scoring for Bournemouth. I couldn't be happier. Matt Grimes had put Swansea 1 up. Brooks and then Hamid Traore put Bournemouth 2-1 up. Jamie Patterson scored to make it 2-2. But then Ryan Christie in the 91st minute gave Bournemouth the win. Bristol City 0, Norwich City 1. Plymouth 2, Crystal Palace 4. Odson Edward and a Jean-Philippe Mateta hat-trick giving Palace the win. Palace were 2-0 down in that game. Ben Wayne and Luke Cundle had put Plymouth ahead. Palace scored three goals in four minutes and then added a late, late finish by Mateta to wrap things up. Fulham won, Tottenham won. Fulham threw 5-3 on penalties. Uh, Mickey Van de Veen own goal. I believe that's his second own goal of the season. Unfortunate so far. And then Richarlison with the equaliser went to penalties. Pereira scored, Son scored, Jimenez scored, Kulosevsky scored, Wilson scored, Davinson Sanchez missed, Jaipolina scored, Madison scored, and then Kenny Tete scored to confirm the win for Fulham. Disappointing from Spurs. I was really hoping they'd take the Cups properly serious this year and go and try and win one of them. Largely because it would have been hilarious if they finally won something the year Harry Kane left, but it wasn't to be. Uh, Tranmere 2, Leicester City 1, Ndidi and Vardy with the goals there. Wickham 0, Sutton United 1. Portsmouth 1, Peterborough 1. And Peterborough win 5-4 on penalties. Port Vale 0, Crew Alexandra 0. And Crew win 2-0 on penalties. Um, Crew, sorry, Port Vale win 2-0 on penalties. Crew missed all four of their penalties. That is a staggering display of incompetence. Wolves 5, Blackpool 0, Sasa Kalicic, Fabio Silva, 2 from Matt Doherty, and then young Nathan Frazier on his debut, uh, English-born Irish youth international, very, very promising uh, to wrap things up there. Uh, Wrexham won, Bradford won, Bradford win 4-3 on penalties, Birmingham won, Cardiff 3, Luton 3, Gillingham 2, Jacob Brown, Alfie Doughty had made it 2-0, Jaden Clark pulled one back, Collie Woodrow made it 3-1 to Luton, and then Tom Nichols got a late goal, but unfortunately for Gillingham, they couldn't find an equaliser. Stoke 6, Rotherham 1. A walloping. Sheffield Wednesday won. Mansfield won. And Mansfield win 5-4 in penalties. Sheffield Wednesday season off to a disastrous start. Um, Newport County won. Brentford won. Brentford win 3-0 on penalties. Newport miss all three of theirs, while Mbomo, Wissa and Lewis Potter all score for Brentford. Matthias Jensen had put Brentford one up in the 87th minute. Newport had equalised through Rye in the 96th minute. On to penalties we went, and Brentford survive. Bolton won, Middlesbrough three. Dion Charles put Bolton one up. Matt Crooks equalised. Was nil nil on nine. Oh, sorry, it was one one on ninety minutes. Riley McCree on ninety one, and Morgan Rogers on ninety four, giving Burr the win there. 
Exeter won, Stevenage won, Exeter win 5-3 on penalties, Reading 2, Ipswich 2, Ipswich win 3-1 on penalties, and finally Salford won, Leeds won, Salford win 9-8 on penalties. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Nine games ending in a penalty shootout last night. Um, Leeds will be desperately disappointed to go out to Salford uh, Gary Neville's commentary on the game was borderline disgraceful. But, you know, it is what it is. So tonight we have Harrogate Town versus Blackburn Rovers, Chelsea versus AFC Wimbledon, Sheffield United versus Lincoln, Nottingham Forest versus Burnley, Old Premier League, and Doncaster versus Everton. Everton hoping beyond hope for something to cheer everybody up. We also had the PFA award ceremony last night. So Pep Guardiola had been voted manager of the year. Erling Haaland had, had won Premier League player of the season, Premier League young player of the season, and football writers player of the season. Julio Enciso won goal of the season for his goal against Man City. And Kepa had been given the save of the season for his triple save for Chelsea against Villa. And we went into last night with the PFA Player of the Year, the Young Player of the Year, and the Team of the Year to be decided. So, first up, Erling Haaland wins, well, it was actually last up, but Erling Haaland wins Player's Player of the Year. Personally, I wouldn't have voted for him. He had an amazing season in terms of goal scoring, but he had a lot of sinkers last season. And when he doesn't score, he doesn't offer a whole lot. But I'm not going to argue with the result. He won player of the year. What I am going to argue with here, though, is he was also eligible for young player of the year. And if he wins player of the year, you are saying he was the best player in the league last season. That's what you're saying. That last season, the 22-23 season, Erling Haaland was the best player in the league. And if he counts, sorry, if he counts as a young player, surely then he's also the best young player in the league. Surely by default he wins that award. Instead, they gave it to Bukayo Saka. Now I'm delighted for Saka. I adore Saka. I think everybody does. He's an incredible player. He's outrageously talented. And he's got such an incredible future ahead of him. But if Haaland wins Player of the Year and is eligible for Young Player of the Year, he has to win Young Player of the Year by default. I'm sorry, he just does. Moving on. The Team of the Year is a farce. An absolute, undeniable farce. Aaron Ramsdale is goalkeeper. Aaron Ramsdale wasn't one of the three best goalkeepers in the league last year. Allison was by far the best keeper in the league. By far the best keeper in the league. Nick Pope was second. And I would say you could go Ederson or David Rea third. But both of those would be above Aaron Ramsdale. You're at fifth before you get to considering Aaron Ramsdale. In defence... Kieran Trippier, I don't have an issue with that. He was very, very good last season. Consistently, 
he was the best right back over the course of the season. No left back was picked, which is ridiculous. They picked three centre backs. They picked William Saliba, who wasn't the best centre back in his own team last season. And they picked Ruben Diaz and John Stones. Now, Nathan Aki was City's best defender last year from August to May. He didn't make the team. John Stones made the team. John Stones played 23 Premier League games last season. And at least five or six of them were in midfield. So he played less than half the season at centre-back. And somehow he's in the PFA team of the year. He wasn't good until February. Ruben Diaz. He played 26 games last season. So he missed 12 games. He missed basically a third of the season. And somehow he's in the team of the year. Sven Botman, who was undeniably the best defender in the league last season, didn't make the team. Nathan Aki, the best player on the title winner, didn't make the team. Gabriel, the best player on the team that finished, the best defender on the team that finished second, didn't make the team. That is the most, most years there's at least one or two ridiculous shouts on this team of the year. This year, we're only through goalkeeper and defence and we've already got four who shouldn't be in it. Look, I could live with Diaz. I could live with Diaz. You want to tell me Diaz was better than Gabriel? I would agree. However, Gabriel played a lot more games, which should matter. You should have to play a minimum of like 30 games. You should have to, to qualify. That's ridiculous. Botman is one of the most egregious snubs I've ever seen from the team of the year. But he's not even the biggest snub this year because Alison Becker last season in a team that was dreadful, Alison Becker had the season of his career. He was outrageously good. He is the best goalkeeper on the planet by a considerable margin And last season was the best season of his career. He carried that team. He and Botman should be furious. The midfield is is what you would expect it to be. It's KDB, it's Rodri, and it's Martin Odegaard. Bruno Gomeris was the best player in the league from February to August. He just was. He was the best player in the league from February to August, and then he got injured. And he played through the injury, but it slowed him down. He was still very good, but he wasn't at that world-class elite level that he had been from August from August to February. Bruno Gamera should have been in the team of the year. He just should. One of the others would have to drop out, and for me it would be KDB. He's the best player we're talking about here. But last season was not one of his best seasons. He, like many other City players, had a bit of a slow start and then really came on 
towards the end of the year and showed the world-class quality that he has. But Bruno Gomeric deserved to be in that team ahead of him. Rodri, absolutely. Phenomenal. City's best player last year. Odegaard, absolutely. No problem at all. He was great. But Bruno Gomeric has been hosed here. He's not as big a snub. Not as big a snub as Botman or Allison, Because there is a strong argument made for Kevin De Bruyne. But Bruno Gomeric should have been in the team. It feels like they gave them Trippier as a little pat on the head. But the two best players in that Newcastle team were Botman and Gamerish by a wide margin. And neither of them got in. If Nick Pope had been the goalkeeper, I'd still be annoyed, but not as annoyed because Nick Pope was really good. Nick Pope was better last season than Kieran Trippier was. And Trippier was very good, but he was the fourth best player at Newcastle. I don't know how he's their only player in the team of the year especially when the centre-back choices are are so poor. Um, in attack, they've gone for Saka. No problem. Absolutely. He was, he was outstanding up until the last 10 games. So that's fine. They've gone for Haaland. No problem. And they've gone for Harry Kane. Now, because they have to list us out in, in a team... Uh, we have William Saliba as the selected left-back and Harry Kane as the selected left-winger. Now, obviously, players just pick four defenders, three midfielders and three attackers. But for me, you should have to pick players by position. Harry Kane doesn't play left-wing. I would argue Harry Kane individually was better than Erling Haaland last season when you factor in all aspects of the game and you look at the creative side and what he does outside of just scoring goals, but it is what it is. I don't have a problem with Kane being in the team. And I don't necessarily feel like there was an outstanding winger outside of Rashford, who really and truly just had one really good run of form and then fell off towards the end of the season and didn't start the season particularly well. So I don't have a problem with the front three. I don't have a huge problem with the midfield, but Gamera should have been in it. But the defence is a farce, and the goalkeeping choice is laughable. Absolutely laughable. Anyway, we are going to move on. We are going to move into nostalgia mode. And we are going to travel back in time to early 90s. Italian football, of course, because... You know, why not? And we're going to focus on one man. We're going to focus on the career of Fabio Capello, who's my favorite manager of all time. He takes over from Arrigo Saki for the 91-92 season. Saki is arguably the best manager in the world at the time. He's going off to manage the Italian national team. Before we get into Capello as the manager, let's just quickly cover something that's always overlooked. Fabio Capello was a great player as well. Came through the academy at Spal, made his debut at 18, established himself there, earned a move to Roma, spent three seasons there, 
then went to Juventus and was a linchpin for them for six years. Juve had concerns about his knees. They sold him to AC Milan. He was great for Milan for about a year and a half, and then the knee injuries really started to hamper him. And he was forced to retire in... 1980 at the age of 34, which, to be fair, back then, that's about when players retired anyway. He won 32 caps for the Italian national team. He won Serie B promotion with Spal. He won a Coppa Italia with Roma. He won three Serie A titles with Juve. He won a Serie A title and a Coppa Italia with Milan. So very accomplished player. Upon retiring, he... Is at Milan, and he decides he wants to be a coach there. So over the first two years, he works his way up and becomes coach of their Primavera team. He takes over as caretaker manager in 1987 briefly, then goes into an assistant role to Rigo Saki. And he takes over in 1991. In 1991, he leads Milan to the title. A team with names like Baresi, Costa Curta, Albertini, Tassotti, Maldini, Carlo Ancelotti, late in his career, Roberto Donadoni, Diego Fuser, Ruud Hullet, Frank Reichard, Marco van Basten. A great, great team. They win the league by eight points. Back in the day where there was only two points for win, they went unbeaten. 12, 22 wins, 12 draws. Scored 74 goals, by far the best in the league. Conceded 21, second best defence in the league. Were top every week bar two. Rolled through Syria. Got to the semi-finals of the Coppa Italia and lost to Juventus. Marco van Basten was his golden boot winner. This was a great, great team. And he's off to a great start in his managerial career. The next season, 92-93, they again win the Serie A title. They also win the Supercoppa Italiana. He brings in Gianluigi Lentini, at the time a world record transfer, one of the most exciting wingers the game had ever seen at this point. He brings in Jean-Pierre Papin from uh, from Marseille, a great, great goal scorer. Doesn't settle in Italy, unfortunately, but he's looking at the long-term solution up front because, remember, Van Basten's ankle is starting to give him real problems here. They signed Dejan Savicevic from Red Star Belgrade. He'd been part of that amazing Belgrade team that won the European Cup. They signed Stefano Iranio, another very, very good player. In the league, 34 games, 18 wins, 14 draws, two defeats, scores 65, concedes 32. They win the title by four points from Inter, 50 points, again, two points per win. Their only defeats are home to Parma and home to Juve. It's worth pointing out They had the title basically wrapped up going into March. From the 7th of March, when they beat Fiorentina through the end of the season, they only won one more game. They beat Ancona 3-1 away. They drew at Lazio. 
They they lost to Parma. They drew with Torino. They lost. They drew with Napoli. They drew with Inter. They lost to Juve. They drew with Udinese. They beat Ancona. Drew with, with Roma. Drew with Cagliari. Drew with Brescia and drew with Genoa. So you're looking at nine draws, one win, and two defeats in the last twelve games of the season, which just tells you that they had the title comfortably wrapped up so early on, having in the first 22 games of the season won 17 and drawn five. They were an absolute machine, and then things got real wobbly for them. In the Coppa Italia, they got to the semifinals again and lost to Roma. And in the European Cup, they beat Ljubljana and then Slovan Bratislava to qualify for the group stage. In the group stage, they had IFK Gothenburg, Porto and PSV Eindhoven in their group. They won all six group games and advanced to the final. At this point, there was two groups, four teams each. One team comes out of each. That's the final. They lose to Marseille in the European Cup final. Basil Boli with that famous headed goal. Obviously, lots of controversy around that since because Marseille were found guilty of match fixing. No one has ever definitively said if that final was fixed. But there were multiple decisions that went against uh, Milan in that final that were quite controversial. Into season number three, we shall go. And again, they win the league title. Again, they win the Super Cup. They bring in Christian Panucci, Florin Radicoyo, who was Hadji's executioner, was his nickname, Romanian international, Alessandro Orlando, Brian Lauderb arrives on a free, uh, sorry, on a loan because Fiorentina have been relegated. Ruth Hullett leaves, Frank Reichard leaves. They're two huge departures. One name that's at Milan at this point that it's often forgotten that he played for Milan because I don't know if he actually ever played a competitive game. Uh, he did not. He spent. Three years of the four years he was contracted to AC Milan on loan with Grasshopper Zurich is Giovanni Elber, who obviously would go on to great success with Stuttgart and then Bayern Munich. But it was Milan that kind of made him the player he was, or, or sorry, gave him the opportunity to be the player he'd become. Signed him from Londrina in Brazil as a completely unknown 18-year-old. Brought him in developed him quietly for a year, sent him on loan, and then made a mistake and let him leave. But it is what it is. Now, it's worth noting that before this season gets underway, Gianluigi Lentini, the world record transfer winger that they brought in the previous summer, 1992, in the summer of 93, they play a preseason tournament. He's driving home from it. He's driving a Porsche. He gets a flat tire. He stops at a service station and gets the tire changed. He doesn't check the tire after it gets changed and doesn't realize that what they've put on is basically one of those uh, space saver tires, one of those skinny ones that you're not meant to exceed whatever it is, 50 kilometers an hour. He takes off down the road like a bat out of hell. He was doing an estimated 125 miles an hour. And he crashed. And he was dragged from the car seconds before it exploded. 
he had a fractured skull, his eye socket was all messed up, and he was placed into a medically induced coma. And unfortunately for Lentini, for Milan, and for football as a whole, he was never the same player after that. He was outrageously gifted. And unfortunately, that car crash just changed the course of his life. Now, he went on and still had a decent career. He played for Atalanta for a year. He was went back to Torino where he'd made his name and he did well there. And then he bounced around the lower leagues for a long time. But he should have been an all-timer. He had that kind of ability. He, Kavice Kvaratskhelia reminds me of him. He's him, he's Luis Figo, that type of player. It's worth pointing out, the reason Milan signed Lentini was because United wouldn't sell them Ryan Giggs. Uh, Giggs was the the one that they had wanted because of his age and the commercial opportunities and all that were seen as huge. Lentini was a better player at the time, and I would argue a more talented player, but he was also a bit of a maverick. He would also play his own game at times and kind of get, he'd, he'd sometimes forget that he had teammates. But the talent was unbelievable. And in that first season at Milan, Capello did get him to play the way he wanted. He was playing in Capello's style. And he was great. And then he had the car accident. And unfortunately, people tend to view him as having flopped at Milan because he only had that one great year. And after that, he was never the same. And he was out for a long time. But... He just never, never recovered. That first season, he was tremendous. And Marcel Desi, there's a quote here. You could see the skills, how he was before the crash and after the crash. Everything was completely different. Never recovered. So just imagine your favorite team spends a world record fee on a player, has a great first season, and then you that player kind of disappears. Matt Janssen at Blackbird I talked about a few weeks ago. He wasn't the same caliber player, but the same type of thing happened to him. He was brilliant. Then he had the accident, and then he just wasn't the same. Wasn't ever the same player. Um, and it's such a shame, because they had the perfect midfield. Boban, Albertini, Desai, Lentini. Perfect. Anyway, we move on. Uh, in this 93-94 season... Milan once again win the league title, three points clear of Juve. They concede only 15 goals all season. They score only 36 goals all season. Only two teams scored more than one goal against Milan that year. Sampdoria beat them 3-2, and Udinese drew 2-2 when the league was already wrapped up. But they were absolutely monstrous defensively and they go on a run from the 28th of November a nil-nil draw with Parma nil-nil 1-0 2-1 against Cagliari then a 1-0 win nil-nil 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 2-0 against Foggia 1-0 and then 2-1 against Inter so your look, that brings you to the 20th of March. 
So you're looking at a run of basically four months where they concede two goals. Sorry, three goals. One of them is in the last game. And that's what separates them from the pack. Massaro is their top scorer with 11 goals. Boban is second with five. Because they just can't be arsed. You don't need to score goals when you don't concede goals. Uh, Copa Italia, they go out early, lose to Piacenza in the third round. They win the Super Cup again. In the European Cup, they beat Aru of Switzerland 1-0 on aggregate. Then they beat Copenhagen 7-0 on aggregate, scoring six in one game. Papan got two. Simeone got two. Laudrup got one. And Orlando got one. Uh, They go into the group stage. Things are a little bit different now. Still only two groups, but this time there's two teams advancing. So in the group, they draw with Anderlecht, beat Porto, beat Bremen, draw with Bremen, draw with Anderlecht, draw with Porto. They top the group. They come out and they face Monaco. And the semifinals then were one leg. The winner of each group hosted their semifinal. And they beat Monaco 3-0. And then they go into the final. Huge, huge underdogs. Even though they've won three titles in a row, even though this is the greatest defence ever assembled, Tassati, Costa, Carter, Baresi, Maldini, they go into the final as huge underdogs. And the big one of the biggest reasons is there's no Baresi and there's no Costa Carta. They're both suspended. So Maldini has to play centre-back next to Galli. Filippo Galli was sort of the third centre-back they had there for a long time. He was very, very good. At any other club, he's probably a starter. And a young Christian Panucci plays left-back. But the other reason they're underdogs is because this is Johan Cruyff's dream team. This is a great Barcelona team. Guardiola, Koeman, Nadal, Becero, Stoichkov, Romario. This is a great, great team. Notable name on the bench is Carlos Busquets, the backup goalkeeper, probably best known now as the father of Sergio Busquets, but was a very good goalkeeper in his own right. They don't just beat Barcelona. They destroy them. Massaro scores on 22. He scores again just on the stroke of halftime. Come back out of the halftime break and Savicevic scores within two minutes. That gorgeous left-footed lob as Zubi Zaretta is caught in no man's land. And then Desai wraps it up on 58. And that Milan team on that night would have taken apart anybody. They were incredible. Referee on the night, by the way, Philip Don, uh, English referee, one of the good ones. Long time retired now, but one of the good ones. Uh, Rob Harris and Roy Pearson were the linesmen. And Martin Boddenham, who was not only a referee, but also a cricket umpire, uh, was the fourth official. Capello schooled Johan Cruyff that night. Absolutely schooled him. And that Milan midfield on the night, Boban on the right, Donadoni on the left, Albertini and Desai as a double pivot, playing as a flat four that flexed into a box when they had the ball. They were magnificent. And they dominated the Becero Guardiola Amor midfield. 
that might be the crowning glory of Fabio Capello's career. But we're now three years into his managerial career and he has won three league titles and a European Cup. I wouldn't imagine anybody has ever started their career that well. Guardiola, what did he do? Three three league titles? Oh, maybe Guardiola did, didn't he? Did he win three league titles and two European Cups in his first three years? I think he might have, but he had Messi. So, you know. Um, we move on. 94-95. A big fall off for Milan. They finish fourth in the league. They go out of the round of 16 in the Coppa Italia. They win the Super Cup. They win the European Super Cup and they're runners-up in the Intercontinental Cup, which is the World Club Cup as we know it now. Uh, coming in, they re-sign Massimo Orlando. They re-sign Ruud Hullet. There's not a lot of money being spent this summer. It's very much a summer of cutting corners. Papan leaves, Laudrup leaves, Radicoyo leaves. And Hullet, after the return, would leave midway through the season, having had a temper tantrum. Um, they finish fourth. Uh, Juve win the league. Lazio second, Parma third, Milan fourth. So they don't qualify for the European Cup. But in the European Cup that season, they got to another final. So you've got three finals in Capello's first four years as a manager. Uh, In the group stage, they finished second behind Ajax. Sign of things to come. Ajax beat them 2-0 in both games. And Van Hal's team was just spectacular. They did beat Casino Salzburg. A uh, team now known as Red Bull Salzburg. Uh, they did beat, or they drew at AEK Athens, then beat AEK Athens, and then they beat Salzburg again. But they lost both games to Ajax. In the knockout phase, Champions League is expanded now. We now have four groups with two coming out. So we get a quarterfinals. Milan beat Benfica 2 0 in aggregate. In the semifinals, they beat PSG 3 0 in aggregate. That's a PSG team with George Weah. And then we go to the final. And Milan, as opposed to the previous year, are heavily favoured. They have Baresi back. They have Costa Curta back. Now, Panucci has replaced Asati. But it's still an all-timer defence. It's still the same midfield. Up front, you've got Massaro and Simone. They never really worked together because both of them were penalty box players. Simone was a good hold-up player, good target man, very good finisher. Sorry, Massaro was the hold-up man, the target man, the finisher. Uh, Simone was like that fox-in-the-box type of poacher. Good movement, good finisher, but lacked anything in build-up play. Milan were the better team on the night. And Ajax hit them in the 85th minute with a Patrick Clivert goal. It's one of the most tense Champions League finals of all time. It's not a great watch in retrospect. It's a very, very tense game because Milan knew that Ajax kind of had their number that year, having lost to them twice in the group stage. So Milan tried to control the game and didn't really commit going forward as much as they should have. Capello has said since that he left it too long to make changes. He brought on Aranio and Lentini, but it was like 84 and 88 minutes. The game was, well, the game was was lost 
by the time the second sub was made. He brought on Lentini and then Ajax scored a minute later. Nothing to do with Lentini, but it's just unfortunate. Then he brings on Iranio a couple minutes later. It was too late to do anything at that point. It's a disappointing season for Milan without question. So what do Milan do when they have a disappointing season? They reload. And they went out and they signed some genuinely all-time great players. First, first, First to note is Roberto Baggio, who arrives from Juventus for about 9 million euro. He was arguably the best player in the world at this point. But there'd been signs that he was starting to just decline a little bit. So they signed George Weah, who was the guy on the come-up. Now, Weah Weah was already near 30 at this point. What age is George? Yeah, George Weah was 29 when Milan signed him. But he really exploded in these last couple of years in terms of getting into the public conscience, becoming a guy that everybody was looking at. So they bring in Weah, they bring in Baggio. That's the new Fords. That's what they need. The Ford line had let them down the year before. They also sign a very young Patrick Vieira. And they go on and they win the league. We're now at the three points for a win stage of Serie A. 21 wins, 10 draws, three defeats, scored 60, conceded 24, 73 points. They win the league by eight points. They get to the quarterfinal of the Coppa Italia, get knocked out by Bologna. They get to the quarterfinal of the UEFA Cup. They go 2-0 up against Bordeaux. Iranio and Baggio score. And then a Bordeaux team featuring a couple of players that became fairly well-known. Bigzanti Lazarazu, one of the best left-backs of all time. Christophe Dugarry, very good striker. Richard Vichka, good Dutch international. And Zinedine Zidane, who obviously would go on to establish himself as the best player in the world at Juve and then at Real Madrid. They come back from 2-0 down against this Milan team in stunning fashion in the second leg with Zidane pulling the strings and Dugarry getting two of the goals. And Milan are left devastated because they they felt like they were going to walk to the UEFA Cup that season. There was no reason for them to think otherwise. Bayern would end up winning it. They would beat Bordeaux in the final. But that Milan team would have been fairly confident of beating that Bayern team that season. The Bayern team had some great players, Oliver Kahn, Lothar Mateus, Thomas Helmer, Marcus Babel, Christian Ziga, Didi Hamann, Syriacos Forza, one of my favourite players, Mehmet Scholl, Jürgen Klinsmann, and Jean-Pierre Papin, who'd left um, Milan and, and joined Bayern. But Milan would have been co- confident of, of beating that Bayern team, whether they should have been or not, I don't know. That Bayern team is is p- pretty 
pretty special when you look at it. Like, there's not many there. Oliver Kreuzer, maybe, you might say, wasn't a, an elite player. Thomas Struns played in the second leg, wasn't an elite player. Uh, Dieter Fry played in the second leg, wasn't an elite player. But there's a lot of great players in that that Bayern team. But we're going off to off topic. Um, following this season, Capello resigns. And he joins Real Madrid. And he goes about, in one summer, building an incredible Real team. He signs Bodo Wildner to be his new goalkeeper, Christian Panucci to be his new right-back, Roberto Carlos to be his left-back. He brings in Clarence Seedorf into midfield to go with Redondo. And he signs Davor Suker and Predrag Mijatovic as his new forward players. And this team loses Michael Laudrup, Ivan Zamorano and Luis Enrique, three Vital players. But other than Enrique, I think I think Capello would be happy enough to let them go. Lauder wouldn't have worked with Capello. The, the personalities wouldn't have meshed at all. They go up against the Barcelona team that Bobby Robson managed that would go on themselves to win all of the Cups in this season. They would win the Copa del Rey, the Super Cup and the UEFA Cup. Um, a Barcelona team that had Vitor Bahia, Pep Guardiola, Chica Papescu, Piquero, Luis Enrique, Stoichkov, the real Ronaldo, Laurent Blanc, Robert Prozanecki, Ivan de la Peña, Fernando Couto, Julian Lopetegui was there. I think he was the third choice keeper at the time. Um, a great, great group of players. And Real beat them to the title. Beat them by two points to the title. Capello sculpted a masterpiece with this team. Ildner in goal. Panucci, Alcorta, Hierro and Carlos as the back four. Victor, Redondo and Sedorf in midfield. Raul playing behind Miatovic and Suker. And they were unbelievable. They were unbelievably good that year. So much fun to watch. They were a, a change from his a change from his Milan team. He, he was more attacking. He committed more to being more entertaining. And yet it wasn't good enough. Because at the end of the season, Real made the decision to change manager. They decided that Capello wasn't enough. Now, it's worth pointing out that the following season, they appointed Jupp Heynckes, who won the European Cup and got sacked. So in back-to-back seasons, Real won the league and then the European Cup and sacked both managers. That'll tell you a lot about how Lorenzo Sanz ran that club at the time. It'll tell you a lot about what he what he thought he wanted. It was a little bit like, do you remember when Abramovich was just obsessed with Guardiola and wanted his managers to play like Guardiola? That's kind of what this was like. Lorenzo Sanz was so desperate for Real to play like Barcelona. 
He wanted Real to be as adored as Barcelona's dream team had been. And the problem he had is that Real will never be adored the way Barcelona is. Because so much of it is political. So much of it is away from football. Real are looked at as a state-backed team. And Barca, well, they're the representatives of the Catalan people who have been oppressed by the Spanish government. I'm not saying that's my view. I'm saying that's the common view, especially with the one which was held at this point. And it might well be my view. But anyway, he leaves Real and he goes back to AC Milan because Berlusconi begs him to come back because Milan without him fell asunder. So he was replaced by Oscar Taberas in the 96-97 season. Oscar Taberas, obviously everybody knows as the manager of Uruguay. But prior to managing Uruguay, he had quite a strange career. Bella Vista, Uruguay on the 21s, Danubio, Montevideo Wanderers, Penarol, Uruguay on the 20s, Deportivo Cali, Uruguay, Boca Juniors, Cagliari, and then he lands at Milan. And after Milan, he would go on to Real Oviedo, Cagliari, Velasarsul, Boca Juniors, and then he would take over as manager of Uruguay in 2006 when he hadn't been a manager for four years. And most people thought he was retired and he would stay there for 15 years. Anyway, uh, with him in charge, Milan are an absolute mess. So he gets sacked in December and Arrigo Sacchi is brought back in and they end up finishing 11th. So at the end of the season, Capello becomes available and Berlusconi goes begging to Capello. Unfortunately for Capello, Berlusconi was kind of running out of money at this point. And they signed a lot of free agents. Christian Ziga, Patrick Clivert, Ibrahim Ba, Massimo Taibi, Leonardo, and Winston Bogart. All of them flopped. And Baresi retired, and Tassotti retired, and Baggio left, and Simeone left, and Viekovod was let go, which was a really, really, really silly decision. Because while he was in his 30s, he was still a good defender and he would have done a job for them. But whatever. Uh, they brought back Don Adoni in on loan when he was well past his best just to have a grown-up in the room. They end up finishing 10th. It's a disastrous season. There's no other way to describe that. It is a disastrous season. There's just chaos everywhere. Nobody plays well. Nobody. And he gets fired. Now, he was replaced by Alberto Zaccaroni, who would go on and win the league title, which is bizarre how that works. You finish, you win the title, you finish 11th, you finish 10th, and then you win the title again. It's very Chelsea, isn't it? And that's kind of what Milan were in some ways. They had those... Insanely high expectations, but they spent a lot of money and they went and they got the best players time and time again. Um, at this point, Capello decides to take some time off. His, his, his reputation is 
is badly damaged by the season back at Milan. It had been impeccable through the first spell at Milan and the spell at Real. Even though Real let him go, everybody knew that's Real being stupid because he's just won you the league title. But he reappears in 1999 after a year away with Roma. And obviously he had played for Roma, so this was seen as something of a homecoming. He takes over a team that had finished fifth under Zidane Examen, had some, some talent, but was in need of an overhaul. So he brings in Vincenzo Montella, and he brings in Nakata. Sends Christian Zanetti, Marcos Asensio, Francesco Antonelli. Good players. Starts to put in place the basis to build a title-winning team. But they finish sixth. They go out of the UEFA Cup early. They go out of the Coppa Italia in the quarterfinals. The next season, they win the league. They brought in Badastuta. They brought in Walter Samuel, who's one of my favorite defenders of all time from Boca Juniors. Signed Jonathan Zabina, who I never really liked, but Capello adored. They signed Emerson from Bayer Leverkusen, which was an inspired transfer. And they put together a really good team. You had Antonoli in goal, uh, Marco Emilia, a, a solid backup. You had Cafu at right back. You had Aldier, you had Zabina, you had Samuel, and you had Vincent Candela. Some good, really good defensive options. Midfield, you've got Cristiano Zanetti, Marcus Asensio, Nakata, Emerson, Damiano Tomasi, Eusebio Di Francesco, who obviously became manager of Roma years later. He was in the squad as well. Uh, Gaetano Diagostino is in the squad, but a very young player, doesn't play a whole lot. Their attacking options are great, though. Marco Del Vecchio is the fifth option. He was a really good player. You've got Montella, you've got Totti, you've got Badastuta, and you've got Abel Balbo. Balbo's coming off the bench. Badastuta, this is the last throw of the dice for him to try and win a title after staying at Fiorentina for so long. Totti is, I mean, at, at this point, he's already established himself as a god in the city. And Montella is an incredible poacher. And they win the league by two points ahead of Juventus. Capello masterminds a fantastic season. They win 22 games, nine draws, only three defeats, score 68, concede 33. He makes the home stadium a fortress. They don't lose their all season. Did he concede 14 goals their all season? In the Copa Italia, they go out in the round of 16 to Atalanta. In the UEFA Cup, they go out to Liverpool in the quarterfinals, having knocked out Gorica, Boa Vista and Hamburg. Uh, Liverpool beat them 2-1 in aggregate. Michael Owen scored the two goals away and then Liverpool, uh, Roma beat Liverpool at Anfield, but it was all too little too late. This is a genuinely phenomenal team. If Aldair had been able to stay fit all season, at this point he was very much towards the tail. What age was Aldair? He would have been 35. He was 36 during the season. But Aldair and Samuel, when they played together, were great. Cafu at right back, 
Candela at left back. They were so compact, but yet they could fly, they could fly forward when they needed to. Midfield was really strong. And obviously when you've got Totti, Batistuta and Montella up front scoring 52 goals between the three of them, you're going to have a great chance. They were really, really good that year. Really, really good. And unfortunately, they were never able to repeat the trick. The following season, they finished second. Juventus beat them to the title by a point. Juventus were probably the better team that year, but Roma were still going to be disappointed. Uh, They went out of the Coppa Italia in the quarterfinals. They went out of the Champions League in the second group stage, which was just so weird. So in the first group stage, they're in with Real Madrid, Locomotive Moscow, and Anderlecht. They finished second. In the second group stage, they're in with Barcelona, Liverpool, and Galatasaray, and they finished third. And out they go. Liverpool beat them 2-0 in the final game to take that final spot. Uh, Littmanen and Heskey. That's the game where um, Jared Houllier comes back, having been out for for time after the, the heart issue. Um, but that was a, a great Roma team that year. Um, they'd added Panucci on loan. They'd added Diego Fuser on a free. They signed Antonio Cassano, who at that point was the biggest young star in Italy by quite a mile, quite quite a distance. Um, he'd come through the academy at Barry. He'd exploded onto the scene. Everybody was just in love with this kid. He was going to be the next, you know, Del Piero, Zola, Baggio type of Italian number 10. Little did, well, some people knew. Most people didn't realize he had the worst temper, maybe in the history of football. And it was just, it was so strange, the relationship with him and Capello. They didn't get on at all, but they adored each other at the same time. And Capello used to rant and rave about him. But he picked them every week. He brought them to Milan with him when he went there, or to Madrid with him when he went there the second time. Cassano had a good career. He should have had a genuinely great career. But his, his, his anger was just incredible. Into 02-03, they, they drop off massively. They finish eighth. They go to the Champions League in the second group stage and they finish as runners-up in the Coppa Italia. Um, They brought in an old Pep Guardiola who had been at Brescia and been found to be a drugs chief. Uh, Simone Pepe, he's brought in, or he's brought back off a loan. Not a whole lot of money going around. This is the, the tightening of the belts has begun. Roma, like Lazio, had spent beyond their means to compete. And they'd won their league title, so you know ultimately it was worth it. But they had overstretched, and this season we saw them uh, regress to the mean. In 03-04, though, they bounced back and finished second. They signed Christian Kivu from Ajax, who would go on, obviously, and play a big role for Inter Milan. They signed Olivier Decor from Leeds. They'd had him in on loan the previous season. 
very good midfielder, obviously played for Everton and a bunch of other clubs. Uh, John Carew also came in on loan. But again, not a whole lot of money to be spending. Aldair joined Genoa. Cafu left on a free, which was a huge bu- a huge blow because they needed the money. And Badastuda's contract ran out as well. Um, but they finished second, 11 points off top, so not competing for the title, but still getting themselves back into a respectable position. They got to the fourth round of the UEFA Cup. They got to the quarterfinals of the Coppa Italia, but progressed no further than that. And then Capello up and left. And this is the move that's the most controversial one of his career. He went from Roma to Juve. As a player, he'd made the same move. But the rivalry at the time was at its apex for a multitude of reasons. And he was a manager and he was committed to Roma and he'd said he was committed to Roma. But when Juve came calling, he took took the opportunity, he went there. And he built an incredible team. He signed Emerson from Roma. He signed Zlatan. He signed Cannavaro, who had left Parma, gone to Inter, hadn't really enjoyed his time there. He brought in Zabina on a free and he signed Oliver Capo. He also signed or brought back Edgar Davins, who had been on loan at Barca. I think then they just give, gave him away. Did they give, do you know what they did? I think they gave him to Inter in the Cannavaro deal, is I think what actually happened. Um, Antonio Conte retired as a player that season, which is a shame. Fabrizio Micoli, who's one of my favorite players, he left, as did Enzo Morasca, now manager of Leicester City. Marco De Vaio was also sold off and Marcelo Salas was released. In the winter window, they signed Adrian Mutsu, who had obviously had his issue with Chelsea and had signed for Laverno. There was a whole bunch of mess about compensation and all sorts, and Juventus just took him on a free and got, got good good service from him. Um, this is a really good team as well. This is a very, very good team. You've got Buffon in goal, arguably the best ever. I think the best ever. In defence, you've got Zabina playing right back, Zambrotta playing left back, Cannavaro and Turam in the middle. You've got Camerunese on the right of midfield, Pavel Nedved on the left of midfield, Emerson and Manuel Blasi in the middle of the field. And up front, you've got Zlatan and you've got Del Piero. Coming off the bench, you've got Trezeguet, You've got Appia, you've got Pesato, you've got Zalietta, you've got Tacanardi, Oliveira, Birandelli, and Montero. That's a super deep team. Really balanced, very much in the same ilk as his Milan team, much more like the Milan team than either the Roma team or the Milan or the Madrid team. Because he didn't have a Raul or a Totti. I know he had Del Piero, but he played him more as a second striker because that's where Del Piero was better, whereas Totti was that bit better, deeper. And Raul, at that point, preferred to play that bit deeper, even though he was a big-time goal scorer as well. In the European Cup, they got knocked out by eventual winners, Liverpool. Um, Just like Liverpool knocked out Roma in 0-1 and went on and won the competition, this was a good sign for Liverpool. They had topped their group. They'd finished ahead of... Uh, Bayern Munich and Ajax in what was a strong group. Then they knocked out Real Madrid. 
but then Liverpool proved too much for them over the two legs. They won the league by seven points, um, but obviously that league title has since been stripped, but they can strip it all they want. He won the league title. The players... Players on the pitch aren't responsible for what was going on off the pitch. Those players won the title on the pitch. And nobody could could have watched those seasons and thought Milan or Inter were better than, than Juve. They just couldn't. The following season, they again win the league. Uh, they bring in Vieira. They bring in Giorgio Chiellini. Or Chiellini. Uh, Robert Kovac. And Christian Abiati arrives on loan from Milan to be a backup goalkeeper. Um, they lose only once all season. They absolutely run through the league for the first 30 games. 24 wins, one defeat, five draws. Then they draw five in a row and then they win three in a row to win the league. They're, they were unstoppable for most of that season and only slowed up when they had the title wrapped up. Now, again, that title was revoked and they were relegated, but again, they won the league title that year on the pitch. Copa Italia, they get knocked out in the quarterfinals. Uh, He doesn't seem to have had much time or tolerance for winning cups. In the European Cup, they get knocked out in the quarterfinals by Arsene Wenger's Arsenal, who would go on to the final that year and lose to Barcelona. They had topped a group again with Bayern Munich, uh, this time Club Bruges and Rapid Vienna, and then they knocked out Werder Bremen in the round of 16. Uh, again, you've had Buffon. He missed a chunk of that season with a back problem, then it came back strong as he went on to win, win the World Cup. Uh, Kovac played right-backs and brought a left-back, Turam and Cannavaro in the middle, Cameronese, Vieira, Emerson and Nedved. That's monstrous in midfield, absolutely monstrous. And you had Ibrahimovic, Zlatan, Mutu and Del Piero basically rotating in attack. Uh, Cellini was rotation centre-back. They were just great. They were just great that year. And it's horrible how it ended in relegation, but the club deserved to be relegated. Like, the club deserved to be relegated. The players did not deserve to have that title stripped from them, and neither did Capello. They won the first nine. They lost to Milan. They won five in a row. They drew at Lazio. They won six of their next seven. The title was wrapped up by, by early February. And then they just kind of eased through the rest of the season. Um, from there, he goes back to Real Madrid. Real are suffering because Barcelona the previous season have won the league title and they've won the European Cup under Frank Reichardt. So in comes Capello, in comes Cannavaro, Emerson signed for the third time, Van Nistelrooy, Mohamedou Diara from Lyon, tremendous player, knee injuries kind of screwed him. Jose Antonio Reyes joins on loan from Arsenal. In the winter window, they sign a very young Fernando Gago, a very young Gonzalo Higuain, and a very young Marcelo. Now, Gago, I know, never really worked out in Europe. It's only people who watch a lot of Boca Juniors that know how great that guy actually was. He also had a good loan spell at Roma. But he was a tremendous player, and it's just a shame it didn't work out for him. 
But to bring in Higuain and Marcelo in a, in a January at 18 years of age, to pair them for less than 20 million euro combined, that's fairly good business. Uh, Zidane had retired. Ronaldo was sold. Soldado was loaned. Arbeloa was sold. He would eventually work his way back after some time in England. Um, but yeah, Capello, again, sculpted a masterpiece. They beat Barcelona to the title on goal difference. No, on head-to-head. Sorry, they beat them on head-to-head. Um, yeah. They drew 3-3 in the away game, but beat them 2-0 in the home game. Barca had scored more and conceded less. But you, but Real uh, beat them in the head-to-head and won the league title. Because that's just what Capello does. He wins league titles. The Champions League didn't go great. They went out in the round of 16 to Bayern. And that is where our story really ends because at the end of that season, he is once again replaced because Roman Calderon, who is at that point the president of the club, takes a very similar approach to Lorenzo Sanz and wants things that are bright and shiny and somehow ends up replacing him with Bernd Schuster. Now, they did win the league title again, but it was with Capello's team and Schuster was gone midway through the next season, replaced by Juan de Ramos who was then replaced by Pellegrini, who was then replaced by Mourinho, who's the first manager that lasted more than a season, or well, more than a season in a bit, I suppose. Um, but Florentino Perez had returned, which was was kind of the, the, the main thing there. Um, that's it. That is where we end with Capello. He would obviously go on to manage England from 07 through to 2012, I maintain that he had a very good tenure with England, uh, a win record of 66.67%. When he left, he was the most, he's the England manager with the highest winning percentage. I know the international tournaments did not go in his favour, but it is what it is. Um, England England failed at every international tournament, so I'm not sure how that's Capello's fault more than anyone else's. But you look at what he did in his first tenure at Milan, at Real, at Roma, at Juve, and at Real again. He's a success everywhere, bar that middle, that, that second spell at Milan is the only time he hasn't succeeded. It's the only time he hasn't built a title winner. Four league titles with Milan, two with Real, one with Roma, and two with Juve. He is he is one of the all-time greats. Whatever way you want to look at it, he's one of the all-time greats. Nine league titles and one European Cup and two other European Cup finals. And bear in mind, that's only a 16-year managerial run between when he took the Milan job and when he left Real the second time. It's only 16 years. He won nine league titles. And he took a year off. Took a year off. So, you know, it's nine and 15 years. That's incredible. He would manage Russia, didn't have great success with them, got sacked, went to China, took took a big bag of money is what he did, and went to Jiangsu and uh, didn't really want to be there, was there for the money and got sacked. And he retired as a coach at that point at the age of 72. He probably should have retired after the England job. 
Because at that point, he was he, just his legacy was untouched. Now, it's still untouched. The, the guy is, I believe, one of the greatest tacticians ever. He took over the best club side I think the game has ever seen in Saki's Milan. And he had incredible success. He won three league titles, got to a European Cup final in the first three years. In his first four years, he won three league titles and got three European Cup finals. So yeah, Fabio Capello, the Don. See you after this. Right, welcome back. We have breaking news. Manchester City have agreed a fee of 47.3 million to sign Matthias Nunes from Wolves. Uh, there is add-ons to go on top of that. No, there will be no add-ons. That's bizarre. Because Wolves are asking for a lot more, but I think the player has put the pressure on. And I'd imagine his agent has put a bit of pressure on there as well. Uh, Wolves make nearly a 10 million profit on him in a year, which isn't bad. But they do now have to very quickly go and sign at least one, if not two midfielders to replace him. Uh, Nunes will be a good addition for Man City. He really, really will. Uh, across Manchester, Rafael Varane is set to be out for a few weeks with an injury sustained against Nottingham Forest. Uh, United are in the process of bringing in Mark Kukurea to replace Luke Shaw, who's out for an extended period. So it looks like their defence for a while could be Juan Bissaka, Lindelof, but hopefully Maguire, Martinez and Kukurea. Because if it's, if it's Juan Bissaka, Maguire and Kukurea in the same defence, that's the biggest overpay right back ever, the biggest overpay at left back ever, and the biggest overpay at centre back ever, along with the biggest overpay for a garden ornament of all time, plus the biggest overpay for a goalkeeper in the history of the game. That's magnificent. Hopefully, hopefully we get to see that. Uh, Randall Colomuani is refusing to train with Eintracht Frankfurt as he tries to force a move to Paris Saint Germain. Um, Marcus Croce, the sporting director, says this behavior has no influence on our transfer business. To be fair, it's too late for him to try and force this. If PSG pay up, he'll go anyway, but he's going to have to report back to training next week if he doesn't get the move. So this doesn't really benefit him all that much. Uh, Cole Palmer, the Manchester City attacking midfielder, is apparently a target for Manchester City. No, sorry. He's a target for Chelsea. He's at Manchester City. Um, I'm really not sure what the point of that transfer would be. I certainly don't think it's a good move for Cole Palmer, who's very, very talented. But I think that would be a waste. If he wants to leave City, it's to play every game. And there's a lot of clubs where he could go and play every game. Chelsea's not one of them. Megan Rapinoe is, or Rapino is set to play her final match for the U.S. women's national team in a friendly against South Africa on the 24th of September. She's played in four World Cups, winning two. I believe she's also won a gold medal. She has in 2012. She won the 2009 Ballon d'Or. She has made 203 appearances for the U.S. women's team. 63 goals. She's 38 years of age now. She is one of the all-time greats. 
She is a controversial figure because she's outspoken. And may she stay outspoken for as long as she wishes. Because nobody should try and silence her when she has important things to say. Um, A genuinely great player. A genuinely great player. She's engaged to Sue Bird, who's one of the greatest women's basketball players of all time. Um, Retired a a number of years ago, but genuinely one of the all-time greats, both at UConn and then Seattle Storm. Actually, she retired last year, didn't she? Yeah, she retired last year. I thought it was like three years ago. She retired last year. Um, she's won, Sue Bird has won five Olympic gold medals, which is ludicrous. Uh, but yeah, Megan Rapinoe, uh, incredible career. Obviously, she's going to stay playing club football, I'd imagine. Um, I hope so anyway. She plays for OL Reign, which was the Seattle Reign, they're now owned by Olympic Leon. Um, and she's been there a long time. She's a genuinely great player. So hopefully she keeps playing because she still has a lot to offer at club level. But what a career. What an incredible career. Uh, last thing to do then, I suppose, is our gossip. So, Chelsea could launch a bid for Ivan Tony before the transfer window shuts. Um, they could. They shouldn't. Well, they should. But he also should say no and he should go to Spurs. Tottenham have offered Bayern Munich the chance to sign... Eric Dyer. I would like to offer all of you the chance to buy a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be kicked somewhere painful by me. It's the same type of offer. I await your replies. Uh, Brentford have pulled out of the race to sign Brennan Johnson because the price has gotten too high. Uh, Spurs have been in contact with Barcelona over the availability of Ansu Fati. Manchester United have approached Leon for Nicholas Tagliafico. I don't think they have. Besiktas are set to offer Mason Greenwood a return to football. Um, that would be that would be poor from Besiktas. United have submitted a loan proposal for Mark Kukurea, which looks like it will be accepted. Chelsea have received an inquiry for Bayern Munich, from Bayern Munich about Conor Gallagher, uh, while Trevor Chalaba is also open to move to the Bundesliga champions. I can understand why he is. But we had reports today that uh, Benjamin Pavard will not be leaving Bayern now. So uh, after Fabrizio's here we go, just turned out that it was here we do. And he was wrong again. Uh, Aston Villa are in talk to sign Clement Langley. God, that's underwhelming. Um, Chelsea are considering a loan move. Sorry, considering a move to bring Joe Felix back to the club. It's 90minute.com, so you can be fairly certain it's crap. Fulham are in advanced talks with Everton to sign Alex Awobi. I'm surprised Everton would entertain that. But, you know, Fulham have also agreed a deal to sign Lucas Acampos. He's a good player, but they need a number nine. He's not a number nine. It looks increasingly likely that West Ham will offer Jesse Lingard a short-term contract. I assume that will be one year. Nottingham Forest have agreed a loan deal to sign Nuno Tavares. They did need a left-back. He fills the need. Wolves are exploring a move for Club Libertad's 18-year-old Paraguayan Ford Enzo Gonzalez. When Brighton signed in CISO, his name came up as, as one to watch, one to keep an eye on for the next couple of years. And now it looks like Wolves might be the one stealing a march, bringing him in. It's the same club in CISO was at. Um, but don't be surprised if Brighton end up just nabbing him anyway. 
Uh, Wolves, have, sorry, Arsenal have rejected an approach from Chelsea for Neil Smith Rowe. West Hammer and talks of Paris Saint-Germain over Hugo Ekatiki, according to Sky Sports. But Mike McGrath, who's a real journalist, has said that actually Brentford are the ones in talks there. Uh, Crystal Palace have also submitted a loan offer for him. Luton are keen on a loan deal for Rob Holding. And Liverpool defender Nat Phillips could leave before the end of the, the transfer window with Middlesbrough among the clubs interested. I'd imagine it's Middlesbrough and Leeds, and that's probably it. And that's all I have today, folks. Hope you enjoyed our walk down Fabio Capello's career. And if not, well, tough. I did. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.